1: giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now.
2: You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life.
4: I immediately thought they are punishing these women for having children. And I think there was just something about the punishment of reproduction, the punishment of childbearing, that to me was one of the most insidious dehumanizing forms of devaluing human beings. Uh, you know, to say you don't deserve to have children. You don't deserve to contribute to our society.
5: I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. And I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One Black. One White. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. Some of my best friends are,
2: like, I'm not a blank. Some of my best friends are blank. In this show, we wrestle with the challenges and the absurdities of a deeply divided and
5: unequal country. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the recent Dobbs decision and reproductive justice with someone who knows more about these issues than anyone else. Hey, Ben.
2: Hey, man. You all right? Hey, hey. Always, always good to be talking with you. I'm always better.
5: Yeah, you know, today's guest uh, has me thinking about this song that's in my head. Can you guess which song it is? Is it Sadie? Sadie May? No, no, that's a, that's a good one. That's a good one. But th- <laughs> this one is, I'll always love my mama. <laughs> I'll always love my yeah, mama. I'll always love my mama. I got to say, because Dorothy Roberts, our guest today, is the leading scholar of Black motherhood and the fight for reproductive justice. This scholar, this advocate, This tireless activist for reproductive justice has written four books, probably the most influential of them in shaping how we understand the meaning of having control over your body is a book called Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty. I am so excited to have her on our show today. She's a law professor and sociologist now at your alma mater. That's right, U- University of Pennsylvania. And she's a Chicagoan. I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah. She's
2: from our neighborhood. It's all real. And so we are at the 50th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision. This month, January 2023, is the 50th anniversary, it was January 1973. Last summer, when the Dobbs decision came down, Khalil, Mm -hmm. and it ruled that a woman does not have a constitutional right to an abortion. That's right. And the uproar that happened, and people say it shaped the midterms that happened. But there's so much more to the Dobbs decision. Yes. And Dorothy is going to help us unpack that.
5: Yeah, because the truth is that most of the conversation has been framed only around the loss of the right to an abortion, that states can now take that right away. But the truth is, If we had been listening to dorothy roberts over the course of the work that she's been doing for decades we would have understood that this is really a fight about the right to choose what you do with your body whether it's to choose an abortion or to not choose an abortion this issue cuts both ways and seeing it through the lens of race as she has done helps us really understand that and so kind of what you're saying is
2: people might not have listened to her before but once they listen to this podcast,
5: <laughs> done deal. We we solve things. That's right. But I got one more thing to add, you know, speaking about mamas. So some of our listeners know that my mother's grandfather has this ambiguous racial past. And in a way, he left Mississippi in the 1920s and married a black woman because it was kind of illegal because he was kind of white presenting. He was kind of white presenting. <laughs> <laughs> People say it, sometimes say that about me. Exactly. So <laughs> so the the reason this matters is because one of the ways that Dorothy Roberts's career has been shaped is by her own story of growing up as a product of an interracial marriage. Mm. That's right. She helps us understand like the motivation for her to care about even childbirth and what children mean for the world and the right to choose what you want to do when you are thinking about planning for a child kind of has a lot to do with her own background. So we're going to we're going to hear a lot more about who Dorothy Roberts is, as well as what she thinks we ought to be doing differently about reproductive justice in this country.
2: Let's jump right into this because Dorothy has a lot to say and we need to hear it. Dorothy, it is great to meet you. Thank you so much for being on Some of My Best Friends Are.
4: Thank you very much for inviting me. I look forward to our conversation.
2: Absolutely. So all three of us grew up in Hyde Park area. Wow. Khalil and I went to Kenwood together, uh, which is the high school in in Hyde Park. But I'm also the father and parent in an interracial family. I'm maybe not unlike your father back in the 60s. (laughs) I have this very bookish sort of Dorothy Roberts-like daughter, who is now 17. Her name is Lysia. But maybe you can talk about, you know, that part of your your past and sort of this interracial identity in this family that you came from in the same neighborhood that we're from. Yeah,
4: sure. It, it's so interesting because for most of my career, I have not talked about my mm. background, about my parents' race and now it seems to come up a lot and i'm mm-hmm. working on a kind of memoir about my parents so it's very present in my mind and of course my background my family have been very influential in my career and my interests so that only makes sense i just you know i just haven't talked about it much so i grew up in the 1960s in Hyde Park I would have gone to Kenwood High, but my father had a Fulbright <laughs> fellowship in Egypt. So I spent my first two years of high school in Cairo, Egypt, instead of in Hyde Park.
5: That's really fascinating.
4: I went to Shoesmith Elementary School, which is right you know, down the street from Kenwood High.
2: I live a block away from Shoesmith. I pass it every morning on my dog walk. We're neighbors.
4: Yeah, that's amazing.
2: <laughs> historically, historically you know, across time.
4: Historically. So this was in the 60s. Uh, My father was a white anthropologist at Roosevelt University Mm -hmm. in Chicago, downtown Chicago. My mother was an immigrant from Jamaica who first lived in Liberia before she came to the United States. But she got a scholarship to Roosevelt and met my father there while she was a student And my father was a researcher of interracial marriage. Interesting. You're going to have to stop me if I get too deep into this, (laughs) because I could talk just about this forever. (laughs)
2: This is so, yeah, like I said, this is my experience, so I'm so curious
5: about his research and how how you interpreted it and how you felt it as a a child. Just so you know, Dorothy, I've been also researching Ben as a white guy (laughs) raising two biracial kids, so this is helpful to me, too. (laughs)
4: Okay, so my father growing up was always writing a book from the first distant part of my memory, writing a book on interracial marriage in Chicago and was interviewing Black-white couples in Chicago. Okay. And this was an important part of my childhood because he not only was researching it, he was promoting it. He really believed that interracial marriage was the answer to America's race problem.
2: So interesting.
4: And this was reflected in our family because he married a black woman, my mother, and all of uh, their friends or most of their friends were interracial couples. So I thought that my father was working on this book in the 1960s. When I came to Penn 10 years ago and had to collect all the boxes in my basement, I shipped to Penn 25 boxes of my father's papers. Mm. He had passed away and I hadn't looked at them. The first box I opened up, I see these interviews he conducted and the dates on them are 1937. Mm. And I assumed these are couples who were married in 1937, which he interviewed in the 1960s. Lo and behold, they were actually interviews that he conducted in 1937. When hmm. he was a master's student wow. at University of Chicago.
2: Well before he met your mother.
4: Aha. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah.
5: I like this. I'm, I'm liking where this is going. I'm liking this. This gives whole new meaning to the the professional is the personal or the personal is the political. There's a whole new spin on it. <laughs>
4: exactly. Because I had always assumed he got interested in the topic Because he met my mother, not prior to. Now I'm starting to think, did he marry my mother as part of his research project? (laughs) Well, then I I read some more, and I get to the interviews conducted in the 1950s, and he's conducting them with my mother prior to their marriage. Mm. My mother was his research assistant, and she was doing the, the interviews of the women, and he conducted the interviews of the men. Anyway, that's all background. I only discovered 10 years ago, but our life as a family was very, very much influenced by my parents, especially my father's mission to promote interracial marriage in Chicago. Mm. And so I was surrounded by interracial couples. And early on, I had adopted as a little girl, you know, in kindergarten. The philosophy of my father and was very proud to be the child of an interracial marriage. I can remember walking down the street in between my parents and thinking, this is you know, an example of how people of different races can get together. I was proud to do it. By the time I went to college, I was affirmatively hiding the fact that my father was white. I could tell you situations where I lie. I mean, I lied about it. Um, and yeah. I was, and I didn't want people to see him. I didn't want, I hid family photos when I, when I was with my friends that, that he was in. I really wanted to, I thought that I needed to be, um, like I have two black parents and for people to think I had two black parents to identify yeah. as mm. Black. Now, that changed also. And as you know, I, I wrote a book about countering the biological concept of race and highlighting right. the fact right. that yeah. you know Black people have embraced people as Black despite what their exact ethnic background is. But I've gone through a range of feelings and positions about my Blackness. I mean, now, I don't feel like I need to hide the fact that my father was white. Mm-hmm, I think a mm-hmm. lot of my ideas today, the fact that I'm now a sociology professor, um, so much of uh, what I think is important, my, my deep feeling about our common humanity, that definitely comes from my parents.
2: I'd say, Dorothy, in thinking about your father, I don't share his sort of utopian view of interracial yes. marriage. I mean, I think probably like, like you, yes. uh, yeah. what you're saying yeah. that- you know it's beautiful that i have this family and it's you know wonderful on the personal level it's not going to change structures of injustice or change white supremacy and i think that's also the premise of in some ways of our Khalil and I on this podcast that we're able to have these conversations across racial lines and we're best friends and we've been mm. best friends for 35 years but that's that's not the pathway yeah. to changing these deep structural issues. I mean, sort of we're and that that's kind of what we're wrestling with today. And maybe that's a good transition to ask you, how in your own work, how did you come to focus on black motherhood? on reproductive rights and child welfare. like What's the story of that being the focus of much of your work?
4: Sure, so I've always been, since I was very, very young, interested in social justice issues and active in some way in uh, fighting against various forms of oppression, but especially racial oppression. And I see Reproductive injustice is one of the most violent and profound, you know, in a negative way, damaging, dehumanizing ways in which racial oppression is enacted. Now, that fits into my overall passion about racial justice, but in particular, in the late 1980s, when I first started law teaching, I was reading about the prosecutions of Black women who were pregnant and using drugs.
2: This is during the crack epidemic.
4: This is during the crack epidemic and the crackdown by federal and local governments on Black communities in the name of the war on drugs and focusing on crack cocaine as if it were some exceptional, you know, especially violent, antisocial kind of drug use. And one aspect of that war against Black communities was the punishment of Black women who used drugs and were pregnant. And that grabbed me like nothing else. You know, I've thought about why did I think that was such a terrible injustice, but I immediately thought they are punishing these women for having children. And I think there was just something about the punishment of reproduction, the punishment of childbearing, that to me was one of the most insidious, dehumanizing forms of devaluing human beings, Uh, you know, to say, you don't deserve to have children. You don't deserve to contribute to our society. You're worthless. You're disposable. Even though at the time the prosecutions were being portrayed as if they were being done to protect Black fetuses, I knew that was false. And I saw this as a form of racial violence against these women. And so Mm -hmm. that's really what propelled me into scholarship (laughs) and into writing an article about the lack of constitutional support for these prosecutions, arguing that they violated the 14th Amendment, both the right to privacy and equal protection. And that that then launched my book, Killing the Black Body, because I began to think about all the ways, the myriad ways in which Black women's childbearing has been punished from the time of slavery. Of course, during the slavery era, Mm -hmm. Black women's reproduction was commodified. It was forced reproduction, forced reproductive servitude. But after the slavery era, after slavery ended, Black women's childbearing continued to be seen as in need of white supervision. We could go from the eugenic era and into the 1960s and 70s with mass sterilization programs, but then also the impact of welfare restructuring and the way in which welfare became Mm -hmm. especially stigmatized when more and more Black people were receiving welfare up until the end of the federal entitlement to welfare, fueled by this image of Black women who were having babies, you know, false image, I should make clear, having babies just to get a welfare check. And then I also saw that the state taking away their babies through the child welfare system and foster care was an extension of that. in working on killing the black body, I became aware of all the newborns, the thousands and thousands of black newborns who were being taken from their mothers at birth and put in, many of them were left in the hospital, they were called border babies or put into foster care. The foster care population exploded over the course of this time. And I began to see First of all, I became aware of this. I wasn't I wasn't aware of the huge racial disparities in foster care. But once I was aware of it, it was obvious to me that this was an extension of the devaluation of black mothers that I had written about in Killing the Black Body. And that led to my book, Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare.
5: Can I take a liberty here? This is really rich in terms of your own intellectual journey. Uh, to this important issue. I mean, what I hear you saying at its root is that the right to have a child is perhaps the most fundamental expression of being a human being. And that there's really no point in the history of Black people in these United States when the reproductive freedom of Black women wasn't subjected to control by the state in one way or another.
4: That's absolutely true.
5: That's really fascinating. And and when we come back after the break, we're going to talk about how these two systems, the system that is born out of the war on drugs and the child welfare system come together in the problem of child separation. And we're going to hear the story of one woman's horrifying tale of almost losing her child. We'll be right back.
0: a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, NA Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co.
6: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year
1: Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now.
2: We are back with Dorothy Roberts, and we're talking about the child welfare system and
5: how problematic it is. More than problematic, man. It's been like the primary vehicle for pathologizing blackness. This is one of her key points in her early work. Yeah, that is so right, Khalil. Dorothy,
2: you begin your book, Torn Apart, with the story of Vanessa Peoples. Can you tell us what happened to her in 2017 and really how her story illustrates the way the child welfare system criminalizes motherhood?
4: Sure. So, Vanessa Peoples is a young mother who lives in Aurora, Colorado and she was enjoying a picnic with her family at a park, a local park near her home. Mm-hmm. And she had asked one of her cousins to watch one of her two young children, the youngest one, a toddler. Okay. And when the cousin left the park, the toddler traipsed after the cousin. Before Vanessa, who saw this happen...
2: Like normal family stuff.
4: Normal, just... Exactly.
2: We've all been there, especially as dads, where we're not paying attention.
4: Exactly. Like
2: this happens all the time.
4: Exactly. And Vanessa was paying it. She was playing with the older son and had left the younger one in the cousin's care. The cousin left. The whole family was at this park. So it's not as if she was uh, abandoning her child. He ran after the cousin And in a minute's time, before Vanessa could catch up with him, a passerby had seen the child in the parking lot and called 911. Mm -hmm. Vanessa sees this, sees the woman on the phone, gets to her and says, that's my son. The woman is on the phone with the police when Vanessa arrives and will not give Vanessa her son back.
5: Are you kidding? Really? This person thinks they're doing... They're saving a child.
4: Exactly. Vanessa is not in good health. She was suffering from anemia, and she was being tested for leukemia. She's not in the position to fight this woman over her son. And she figures when the police officer arrives, we'll resolve the whole thing. While the police officer arrives... And disbelieves Vanessa, doesn't believe that this is really her son.
5: This is unbelievable.
4: The family has to come and vouch for her. But the police officer hands Vanessa a ticket for child abuse. Mm. (laughs) It turns out in Colorado, there is a criminal charge of misdemeanor child abuse, which doesn't even require any evidence of physical harm to a child. All that happened in this case was that her son was separated from her for a minute, momentarily in her eyesight. She could see. She could see the child. All right.
2: She's now alerted. The child welfare system now is is made aware of her in some way.
4: Absolutely. She now is reported to the local child protection office. So a few weeks later, Vanessa has just given her two sons a bath. She's cleaning up in the basement. She lives with her son in a basement rooms at her mother's house. And a white caseworker knocks on the door because once oh. you're under the radar now, they come to investigate your home. Yeah, These caseworkers rarely, rarely get a warrant to search the home. They don't tell the parents that you have a Fourth Amendment right not to have government agents.
5: They can restrict. The parents can say you can't come into my home.
4: Of course, just like you could with a police. Officer. You would say, yeah. "Where's your warrant?" There's no difference. The Fourth Amendment applies to any government agent who wants to search your home. But there's been an effectively an exemption created, unconstitutional exemption, in my opinion, for caseworkers under grounds that they're there to protect children and. This also is not uncommon, especially in Black neighborhoods, that caseworkers bring police along with them. Three police officers arrived. One of them pointed a gun. Vanessa's coming up. She comes up with a gun pointing at her head, okay? Now, they start interrogating her. Vanessa is saying why are you in my house you don't need to be here you see my children are fine she calls her mother to come her mother goes into the bedroom with the children and vanessa wants to come there the police officer is guarding the door saying that the grandmother cannot be in the room with the children vanessa says let me in the police officer grabs her by the throat Two other police officers, in addition to the one, jump on top of her, what's called hobble her. They hog tie her. They chain her arms and her ankles together and then chain them together, carry her out the house upside down. Like she says, like a pig, like a pig, Mm. like an animal. And... Not only does she go through this trauma, her children are witnessing all of this.
2: Yeah, the idea that they're being protected, they're, they're subjected to this.
4: But the upshot of this is that Vanessa now ha- is registered in the state of Colorado as a child abuser. It's pretty much the worst stigma you can have.
2: We have a clip of Vanessa Peoples who is telling CBS News about this harrowing experience and how it, it really ruined her life.
4: I can't get jobs. I can't even get housing. I'm still living with my mom. The fact that someone else intervened in my life, I'm stuck at zero. And it's just an example of the kind of violence that this system inflicts on families. Fortunately, they didn't take her children from her, but in tens of thousands of cases, especially Black and Native children, are taken from their families, Actually, hundreds of thousands every year are taken from their families and put in foster care, which is itself a damaging system. And just mounds and mounds of research showing that foster care is a pathway to prison, juvenile detention, homelessness, drug addiction, mental health problems. You know, not to say that every child who's been in foster care suffers from these, but you're at greater risk than others in the population of having these very negative outcomes as a result of being in foster care.
5: You know, when I I read uh, what you described of Vanessa's story, and her children and the outcome, I found it deeply upsetting. And I've written about the origins of racial criminalization, and just before Thanksgiving, uh, contributed as a co-chair of a National Academies of Sciences report on how to reduce racial inequality in, the, in, in crime. We call it in crime and justice rather than in the criminal justice system. And in that report, one of the things that we say is that we ought to rely less on the criminal punishment system and more on other systems, even with their flaws, because they are less viscerally lethal in terms of contact with them.
2: Like sending in a first responder who might be part of the child
5: welfare system, is that what you mean? That's correct, or caseworker, or and, and there yeah. are alternatives yeah. to this being called upon in cities across the country, and, and some of this is being stood up right now in terms of police diverting a call, a non-emergency call, to the child welfare system or the mental health sector. And after reading more of your work, Dorothy, I have to say, I mean, uh, it was devastating because I felt like... If Ben and I have been writing about the story of mass incarceration, you know, I would say my interpretation of what you've been writing about is the story of mass separation. Yes. This history since the 1960s of this, you know, Mm. skyrocketing foster care system that's doubled on itself from, I think you say in 1985, there were 276,000 people. Mm. By 1999, less than 20 years later, there were 568,000. I mean, you know the system better than us. Right. What is the scale of this thing?
4: Yes. So... You're right, by the late 1990s, there were almost 600,000 children in the foster care system and black children were the largest group in foster care, four times as likely as white children to be taken from their families. Now the disparities have shrunk somewhat and the foster care population has gone down somewhat, but it's still hundreds of thousands of children
2: Like 400,000, I think.
4: Exactly. More than 400,000 children and Black children still are twice as likely to be separated. And uh, one finding that from a recent study that I didn't know about when I wrote Shattered Bonds, I've included it in Torn Apart, is that half of Black children, more than half of Black children, 53%, will be subject to a child welfare investigation before they reach age 18.
2: That is incredible half of all black children in america
4: half of all black children in america will experience this it's so
5: huge it's so huge but it's also terribly frustrating because i'm sitting here and i, I mean i and i told i shared this with ben even in preparation for this conversation like you know it brought tears to my eyes because i'm like how did i not even know yes this? And how is it possible that that the three of us are in this conversation and we're both expressing our own ignorance about how pervasive and punitive and devastating the system is.
2: I'll even add to that, Khalil, like we think of the child welfare system as a force for good, of taking care of of the neediest. Yes. And, you know, that you're educating us that it's actually a force for harm, that it does much, much more harm than good.
4: Absolutely. So I was not aware of the harm. I only became aware of it because of the work I was doing on the prosecutions of Black mothers and discovered that their newborns were being taken from them by the system. And I think the system has just done a great job at propaganda. And the media, until very recently, has gone along with it
2: often the story goes the opposite way, that there'll be a, a case of a parent who harms a child or even murders a child. And this is very much like the criminal justice system. There'll be an extreme case of crime or abuse. And then that sparks a more emphasis and investment in expanding the system and investigations.
4: Yes, you're right.
2: The parallels to the criminal justice system are all over the place. I took this status from your own work, but there are about 16% of the cases are of physical or sexual abuse where a a caseworker will go in and protect a child from those. But the vast majority, the rest of the 84%, which are considered neglect, are usually issues of poverty. It's punishing need that these are parents who actually could use much more investment. And I'm thinking about another corollary between this and policing that when a caseworker shows up, when a a child protective services shows up, the only tool they have to help to help in quotes is removal. They can't help someone with housing. They can't help them with food. They can't help them with clothes. They can't help them with a job or with education. Or a parent with child care. Their only thing that they could do is say, I'm going to take the child away. Exactly.
4: That is the primary tool of this system. So it's both practically that's what the caseworker has to deal with the problems the family is encountering, which mostly are problems of poverty. Neglect means failure to meet the needs of a child. <laughs> so, and usually mm-hmm. parents who don't meet the needs of their children, it's not because they're deliberately withholding food that they have. It's not because they're deliberately withholding clothing or housing. <laughs> you know, They're not living in the homeless shelter because they want to neglect their child. They're living there because there isn't affordable housing in their city. And so... The response is to take the children away and then require the parents or other family caregivers to somehow come up with the answers. And on top of that, they're given these therapeutic remedies, you know, they have to go to various kinds of counselors, and they have to take parent training classes. So it makes it even more difficult. As I mentioned the case of Vanessa Peoples, it made her life more difficult to get involved with this system. It's harder for her to take care of her children now. And so, yes, this is a system that, that punishes poverty. It diverts attention away from all the structural impediments to meeting children's needs and blames parents for it. It polices families instead of supporting families.
5: This is really enlightening, I think, I I can say for Ben and me, and I certainly know many of our listeners are learning a lot. We've been talking to the professor, scholar in various advocacy and activist circles around Black motherhood, and particularly uh, reproductive rights and bringing together the right to control one's body, including the fight for racial and social justice. And when we come back from the break, we're gonna talk about the recent Dobbs decision and how this is really something that uh, Dorothy saw coming many decades ago when she first started this work uh, because she could see the limits of Roe v. Wade and what it provided. We'll be right back after the break.
1: JP Morgan Chase Bank NA member FDIC. Copyright 2024 JP Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at t now.
6: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year
2: We are back on Some of My Best Friends Are. We're here with Dorothy Roberts. Dorothy, we are at the 50th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision. And last year, we had this other Supreme Court ruling, the Dobbs decision, that said there was no constitutional right to an abortion. It sort of nullifies Roe v. Wade. And I wanted to ask you first, what did Roe achieve and what didn't it achieve?
4: Roe achieved a recognition that the Constitution protects the right to abortion. And so it protected us against government bans on abortion, It protected us against criminalizing abortion. But what it did not achieve was recognizing the full scope of reproductive freedom we should have. So it did not provide for government funding for abortion, for example. It did not recognize the ways in which structural inequities prevent people from having truly free reproductive lives. It didn't address all the policies that devalue Black people's reproduction, for example, that have devalued Black women's childbearing. So it didn't recognize the full scope of our reproductive lives that include not only the ability not to have a child, to terminate a pregnancy, but also the ability to have a child and to be supported in raising that child. Those second two aspects of reproductive freedom were not touched upon at all in Roe versus Wade, nor did Roe recognize the need for support for actually, effectuating a reproductive decision.
5: Yeah, this is one of the things I was so excited to talk to you about because when Dobbs first happened, I had this really perplexed problem. I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, well, wait a minute. I know that on the literal right side of our political divide, that there are white nationalists and white supremacists who are invested in this replacement theory, which is that they won't be replaced, that we have to save America for, for white Christians. And so I'm thinking that if abortions increase the likelihood that Black women will have fewer babies, isn't this a contradiction with the politics of Dobbs? And it wasn't until I dug into your work that I understood that what you've been saying is that the entire movement for abortion was really not the issue that Black women wanted to protect in terms of their reproductive freedom. Surely they did want access to it, but what they wanted was full control over their bodies. And unlike white women, their bodies had been subjected to increased state interventions since Roe and even before Roe. And so Roe didn't protect them so tell us particularly how we are to understand that in at some point in the very recent past, the state increased its capacity to essentially either force birth control on women or to outright sterilize Black women.
4: We have to distinguish between birth control as a form of reproductive freedom that's in the control of the person that's who's right. using that's it right. for themselves. And birth control as a form of population control So similarly, Black women have demanded access to all forms of birth control, including abortion. And we should be able to have birth control, including abortion, if we want it. But at the same time, throughout the 1960s and 70s, there were government programs, federally funded government programs that forced sterilization on black women an example is the ralph sisters these mm-hmm. two young women teenagers in yeah. alabama who were sterilized without their consent even at, at, when their mother signed a form with an X. She was an illiterate sharecropper. They became the named plaintiffs of a big class action lawsuit that revealed that hundreds of thousands of people in recent years have been sterilized under these programs. Now, the programs would force people to so-called agree to sterilization in order to get health care or in order to get welfare benefits. In North Carolina, the eugenics board operated into the 1970s. And by the time it was exposed, it was mostly forcing sterilizations on impoverished black women, black women who received welfare benefits.
5: So the state itself is, is actually trading its public goods, its resources, its welfare benefits, whether it's food stamps or access to housing, as a way of saying, you can have these things if we take away your right to bear children.
4: Absolutely. This is a very common idea in welfare policy in the United States.
5: Mm -hmm. Dorothy, I want to
2: ask you to connect the dots for me. Okay. Tell me how that leads to the Dobbs decision.
4: Okay. So my first point is we have to understand that reproductive freedom involves resisting, ending all of these forms of reproductive violence, whether it's control over the ability to end a pregnancy, in other words, forcing someone to give birth, or whether it's denying someone the ability to give birth. And that that denial can be through sterilization, it could be through welfare policies, uh, other kinds of policies that pressure people not to have children. So when Khalil says, well, it seems like it like a contradiction mm-hmm. that you would support a ban on abortion, but also support a policy that would discourage Black women from having children. Well, it's not a, it's not a contradiction because they're both policies that deny black women and others, but let's focus on black women for a minute, the ability to control their own reproductive lives. And by the way, when you are in a position where you cannot afford another child, you can't get an abortion, you are pressured into ha- being sterilized. So I see no contradiction.
5: Mm, yeah, no, that that's really helpful.
4: Yeah, they don't want more Black children born. What they want is more Black women to be sterilized. And that is Mm. the pressure that you feel. You can't get government support to take care of your child. You can't get access to abortion. What are you going to do? Believe me, they will fund your sterilization in a minute, and you won't have any trouble getting sterilized.
5: Is it possible then that we will see legislation in some... Near future that will begin to invest in uh, birth control at the state level to achieve just this purpose in light of Dobbs' decision.
4: Well, I would say we already have it, but uh, I think it, it may become more explicit and more obvious. Now, let me let me say another connection to between Dobbs and family policing and these other forms of reproductive violence. What is going to happen as a result of Dobbs is that people who decided, knowing their own life circumstances, they cannot manage another child and are yet are forced to give birth to that child. In most cases, they will keep the child and they will be now at risk of having their children taken from them by the family policing system because they're struggling to take care of the child. The Dobbs decision explicitly suggests that what should happen to children in those cases, babies born as a result of abortion bans, is that their parents should give them up for adoption. Justice Amy Coney Barrett suggested this during the oral argument. And then Alito puts in the majority opinion a favorable uh, suggestion that People can just drop off the babies at these safe haven places, you know, for people who want to give up their babies, and then drops a footnote about the unmet demand for adoptable children, as if these Mm. children should just be commodities in a market for adoption. That probably is not going to have the way in which these children are going to end up in the market for adoption is that their children will be forcibly taken from them by the family policing system. Parents' rights terminated and the children become available for adoption. But even that is a false picture to some extent because Black children are the least likely to be adopted. They're the most likely to stay in foster care, the most likely to age out of foster care. So We have to see these connections between criminalization of parenting and pregnancy, family policing, and the end of any entitlement to support for your children. And Dobbs is going to intensify that because it is going to force people who are unable to meet children's needs, who've made the decision, I cannot manage this child, force them to give birth, and then punish them when they're unable to meet that baby's needs.
2: Dorothy, one of the things I'm hearing in all of your work in terms of resisting and fighting against the Dobbs decision, fighting for women's reproductive freedom, is the need to link those fights to the fight against systemic racism, to all of these historical problems. We can't think of them separately. Yes. And The other thing that I'm thinking about, because we talk so much about the child welfare system, is how you call for the abolition of the child welfare system. You think it's such a a troubled and and oppressive system that we need to scrap it. And it's not like that's not something we've tried. Like like you've talked about this, that during the COVID-19 pandemic that we actually had a sort of trial run with with getting rid of the child welfare system.
4: That's right. Because you know, people not surprisingly are concerned well if we get rid of it what's going to protect children. And we know that children can remain safe without this system because we have examples of that. And one very telling example is the unintended abolition of family policing during the pandemic in New York City.
2: And the CARES Act, which in itself, you know, did did more to, to reduce poverty in a faster time than anything else in the history of the country. Childhood poverty.
4: Exactly. So we know from the evidence from the CARES Act and other studies as well that have looked at what happens when you actually give impoverished families extra income, you know, and as if we needed a study to figure this out, but studies have shown the child poverty goes down, children fare better. And so that's what happened during the pandemic. Child poverty went down and children stayed safe. Now, not only because of the government infusion of supplemental income to these families, but also in New York City in particular, there was a strong network of mutual aid organizations that sprang into action and distributed material resources to families. And so that, those two things are important components of what abolition is about. It's not just about dismantling the oppressive system. It's also about building a replacement that actually supports families yes, and keeps children yes. safe. And so that could include a change in government policy to provide income to impoverished families, but also importantly, mutual aid, community-based networks that provide the material resources that families need.
3: Well, I, I
5: think that uh, it goes without saying that that what you've shared with us, everyone should know, period, hard stop. I mean, if if the yes, story yes. of the new Jim Crow, as Michelle Alexander once described it, or as the reference that you have in your book of, of the punitive welfare child welfare system as, as the new Jane Crow... Um, We are past time to see the fullness of this really invidious system. And I'm just really grateful that you've dedicated uh, all of your career to drawing our attention to this. And while I remain hopeful in this moment that we see things with clarity as the predicate for the possibility of change, I also am a realist. We've got a really tough fight ahead of us. And uh, and this is not an easy subject to master, uh, but you've done it. And so, Dorothy Roberts, thank you so much uh, for all your work, for your tireless commitment to justice, uh, and for helping us see what we should have seen a long time ago. But now, now that we can't unsee it, we have our work cut out for us. Thank you.
4: Well, thank you so much, Kilwil and Ben. I really enjoyed speaking with you. I we have to work together collectively in these movements and the movement to end carceral logics and punitive approaches to human needs, I think is going to be stronger than ever. And that, that's my hope.
2: Thank you so much, Dorothy. This is inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. Damn. Well, That was a lot, Mm. and man, it was so interesting to hear how interconnected all these things are.
5: Yeah, no, I mean, I feel the same way. As I said uh, to you, uh, this was very emotional for me, and one of the reasons why is because all my kids, dude, ran away, you know, at some point. They ran away from home. Well, not exactly away from home, but they left our sight. Did they ever come back? Well, uh, yes, they did. We put them through college and all of this. But, okay. okay. But I mean, we were at this massive holiday celebration when we were living in Bloomington, Indiana. And and our middle child at the time, Jordan, she was like six years old. She just, she just disappeared in the crowd. Oh, wow. And we got her back because someone found her. And instead of calling the police on us, right, they right. took her to the announcer and said, this child is lost. Now, you could imagine this exact scenario where this happened to you, where you're in this white town. And they're like, you screwed up. This... I'm a bad parent, right? I'm, I'm neglectful. Yeah. And the, the difference, of course, is that I was a professor at Indiana University and not someone who was struggling as a low-income resident of that community. Yeah. This <laughs> is the difference between you know, having your parental rights and your right to govern your life and your children's life versus a system that is hell-bent on taking children away from people.
7: Yeah.
2: As a parent, one of the worst horrors you could imagine. I mean sort of the death of a child, of, of just the child being taken from you and you being
5: incapable, powerless to do anything about it. That's right. I am walking away from this conversation empowered with more information, particularly this idea about the family policing system. I, I just think that as you and I move forward in our work talking about mass incarceration, now we've got to deal with this problem of mass separation and the way that the child welfare system works. Man, mass separation. Did you coin
2: that phrase in the middle of this conversation? Because that's
5: kind of impressive. I did. But you know, my brain works like that sometimes. Damn. Damn. (laughs) That's why you're top billing on this show.
2: I was left also with thinking the more that we think of of these issues interconnected, Mm -hmm. that the rights of reproduction... A history of racial oppression mm-hmm. that there's a way rather than rather than as people usually say in these separate fights, like don't make it too convoluted, That's right, stay in your lane. We have to think of them as connected, yes. and you know you feel like you can get some mobilization if everyone feels this is their problem on both ends that's right
5: all right, man. Well, I'm glad that you're part of my kid's life. Uh,
2: Yeah, yeah. These are my nieces and uh, my nephew.
5: (laughs) If someone comes for them, I'm going to say, but they've got a white uncle. I'm the white guy that's going to (laughs) vouch. Yeah.
2: All right, man. Love you.
5: Love you too. Some of my best friends are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, sometimes, Ben Austin.
2: Hey, Hey, it's produced by John Asante and Lucy Sullivan. Our editor is Jasmine Morris. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong. And our showrunner is Constanza Gallardo.
5: At Pushkin, thanks to Tall Malad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. Our
2: theme song, Lil Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young. It is from his album, Tubman. Okay, you definitely want to check out more of his music at his website, averyryoung.com.
5: You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.
2: Hey, and if you like our show, please give it a five-star rating and a review. And okay, even if you don't like it, come on, give it a five-star rating, review it, and please tell all of your best friends about it. Thank you so much.
3: Enter now at tmobile.com/slash-unconventional-awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A dot com, to start a new musical journey today.
7: Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Are you looking to build this year? If so, there is no better time. Then right now to start planning and to get your spot on the construction schedule if you need a garage a stall barn a storage for vehicles rv boat collectibles or even a, a shop for your farm hobbies or car restoration projects visit mortonbuildings.com and start your construction process with superior materials craftsmanship best in class warranty morton buildings are made to last for generations at morton